Not all preservationists are environmentalists, and not all environmentalists are preservationists, but today's guest is, in fact, both. Kristen Harbison is the political director of the Maryland League of Conservation Voters, the political voice of the environment. She's a tireless advocate for healthy communities and made a career in standing up for issues that matter. And while she's currently fighting for a healthier earth, she's also been a passionate voice for preservation. Kristen will explain how and why the environmental and preservation communities can play better together and how that might just save the world on this week's PreserveCast. From Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. Kristen Harbison is the political director of the Maryland League of Conservation Voters, a position she's held since she joined the organization in 2015. Prior to working for the League, she served for five years as senior staff for the Maryland House of Delegates Appropriations Chair, Maggie McIntosh. During her tenure with the legislature, she worked with the Environmental Matters Committee through the passage of landmark stormwater and septics legislation, as well as issues involving fracking, pesticides, and other land use concerns. She earned her undergraduate degree from Hampshire College and graduated with a master's in history and museum studies from the University of Delaware, which led to her move to Baltimore to work at the USS Constellation. Her passion for policy, however, led to a shift in advocacy work, first at Preservation Maryland and then at the National Conference of State Historic Preservation Officers. In these roles, she built coalitions and advocated for sustainable building practices and conservation, as well as for full funding of the Historic Preservation Fund and the Land and Water Conservation Fund. During her free time, Kristen dedicates her time to other great passions, Baltimore, traveling, dancing, history, and spreadsheets. <laughs> Kristen, it's a pleasure to have you with us here today. Well, thanks for having me, Nick. So it was a lengthy and interesting intro. I think um, you were one of the people who truly, we talk about how preservation and, and, and the environment can play well together, but you are truly the living uh, manifestation of that. Um, what led you to this kind of work? What got you involved in history, the environment, all that kind of stuff? Well, I've first of all, I've never actually understood that I was moving. When I changed jobs, as I've changed jobs, I've never understood that I was changing fields or moving into completely different realms with new people. Because every time I've made a move from one job to another, I've always thought it was a natural extension of the other. And so, um, you know, from history to historic preservation made sense from historic preservation to environmental conservation made sense. Um, you can't have one without the other. And so I just feel like I'm working towards in everything I've been, I've done, I've tried to work towards the greater good of better communities. Yeah. And where did you grow up? Oh my goodness. I grew up all over the place. Um, I was born abroad and I've lived in Wisconsin and New York, primarily, uh, little bit of time in Virginia, went to college in Massachusetts, grad school in Delaware. I lived in France a couple years. You've been everywhere. I kind of have. I've got six states, nine cities, and three continents, which just means I'm itinerant. And you're currently a Baltimore resident. Absolutely. I am with, with the fervor of a convert. I love Baltimore City. I've lived here for longer than I've lived any place else. I've lived here since 2000, so it's been 18 years. And so as I mentioned, obviously you, you've been all over the place. You got degrees that really kind of focused on the history side. Mm -hmm. 
And then, as I mentioned in the bio, um, you started working for the USS Constellation. Just for people who are listening who aren't from the area, what is it? It's an 1854 sloop of war. It's the uh, one of the last remaining uh, warship. It's the last remaining uh, floating ship from the Civil War. It's floating in Baltimore Harbor, um, and I was the education director there, so I spent a lot of time talking to fourth graders about the disgusting habits of 19th century Americans living on ships. And did you enjoy that? I had a great time. <laughs> so then you obviously move into more advocacy side work and, you know, interest of full disclosure, former employee of Preservation Maryland. Um, From Constellation, I came to Preservation Maryland in part because I'd gotten involved in uh, the Small Museum Association and I went and working on their conference. And so I decided I really enjoyed the service provider aspect of things and working with many organizations to try to find the resources that they need. And so that was what I did with Preservation Maryland. And then you move on to the National Council of State Historic Preservation Officers, yes. Nick Shippo. Mm-hmm. Um, which, tell us a little bit of what, what Nick Shippo did, and or what they do, I should say, because they, they still do. exist. Yeah, uh, they are the organization that reminds the federal government that they are absolutely obligated to fund historic preservation uh, offices in every state and territory in the United States. Um, and so it's a small organization, but we worked to just be a, um, we were the link between the state agencies and the federal government when it came to the state historic preservation offices, groups like the Maryland Historical Trust. Um, in Maryland, they have counterparts in every state and territory. So you're doing a lot of federal lobbying on that yes. side. Yeah. And again, in that case, I was really um, I was working some way with the uh, with the federal legislators, but I was also doing a lot of work with the service providers and really providing resources for state agencies. And so then you make the jump to working in a state legislature. Yes. And how did that work out? What's it like working in the Maryland General Assembly? What should people know if they're not from Maryland or even if they are and they're just not familiar with how it works? What should we know? What's the big takeaways about working in the Maryland General Assembly? It is uh, it is incredibly fun if you like policy. Um, when people when I left Nick Shpo and I went to work for Chairman McIntosh, people said, why are you leaving preservation? And why did you why are you going to work in politics? I'm like, that's not actually the right question. The question is, why did it take so long? Um, because in I've grew up around politics and I've always sort of been had an advocacy bent, and um, so it was really I'm a policy nerd and when you say that I dedicate myself to spreadsheets that is how I party on a Friday night it is something I find really fun and interesting to look at statistics and looking at people's voting records and seeing how the people work um, so if you are like me and you are a deep dive in the weeds policy nerd working at the Maryland General Assembly, either inside as a legislative aide or on where I am now as a on the lobbying side, is the most fun a girl can have. And it's a 90-day session, so it's also inter- you know, really brief, really compact, pretty yes. focused. The, the it's like amount drinking of, from a fire hose. Exactly. The amount of good that you can do in a single day in the Maryland General Assembly is stunning. Um there's a lot of energy. People are really busy. They are uh, focused on it's everything is condensed. It's an entire year's worth of work condensed into 90 days um, with its own ebbs and flows. And and uh, it's a real community of people who, because we're all the people who like that kind of work, um, 
but it's also everybody there from the legislators, the legislative aides, um, the lobbyists, everybody's there for working towards something important. Um, whether, no matter what we're working on, we're working on something we care about. Um, the legislators, I find, are all extremely dedicated, really committed to doing good work. Um, they give out a lot, of, a lot to be there. It's a because it is a 90-day session, it's a part-time, it's technically a part-time job, um, but they're living away from their families during that 90 days, um, from their children. They're taking time away from their jobs. So it's it's quite a sacrifice for them to be there, and they wouldn't do it if they weren't committed. Yeah. And so you spent five years there really getting the lay of the land, working for, you know, arguably one of the best in the General Assembly, and... Then you've made the jump now, and you've been there for a few years as well, but to the Maryland League of Conservation Voters. So why don't you tell us, what is the Maryland League of Conservation Voters? How long have they existed? What exactly did they do? Well, Maryland League of Conservation Voters has been um, around for almost 40 years. We, As the you said in the bio, we are the political voice for the environment. That's our tagline. One of our signatures is a legislative scorecard. Um, we ask legislators to pass good good and strong environmental legislation, um, and then we judge them on it. We create a scorecard and let uh, the voters know how their legislators are voting on their issues, on our issues. So for preservationists who are interested in that concept, just to kind of dig a little deeper here, if you're someone listening is with an organization, does your 501c3 do that, or does your 501c4 do that, and what's that, the difference? Is our 501c4 does our score is does our scorecard? And what is a c4 versus a c3 for people who are listening who might not know? A 501c3 is most nonprofits. Most nonprofits are educational uh, organizations, and they can get you can get involved in advocacy as Preservation Maryland does as a 501c3. You can get involved in specific legislation, but working in elections and uh, the accountability factor of as we do it is out of our C4, which is a political nonprofit. Uh, it is not tax deductible. Donations to the C4 are not tax deductible, but it still is a nonprofit. Um, so it's through our C4 that we can do work in elections. And so that's what creates the scorecard, mm -hmm. and that's what allows, allows you to endorse and exactly. some of the things that the preservation community hasn't quite wrapped its hands around yet. No, and it is something that I think is really valuable, and it's something that I've really enjoyed being part of that and having the full spectrum of being able to work as um, work in elections this year is super fun, um, and also the educational nonprofit. We've also released, um, we also do a lot of work through our C3 in just issue education. Right. Um, we just today released our issue guide uh, talking about the big environmental issues of that are facing the us in the next few, several years, looking towards the next legislative term. Um, among that is we did include information about the Historic Preservation Tax Credit and the land use issues and the things that you and I have worked well together on. And God bless you for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you've talked a little bit about issues, and right. that might be a good segue to this. Tell us, like last session, and I know last session was a tough session. They're it's not all year. perfect. Um, but what were, give people a sense for, like you've kind of talked in, in generalities, the political voice for the environment, but what does that mean in policy? Like what kind of things were you trying to pass last year? Um, so we were, the environmental community works uh, in very strongly in coalition. Uh, and 
there are probably 25 organizations that work in statewide policy, uh, in environmental policy in Annapolis. We are one of the, the bigger players in that field, um, as I think most of our partners would probably agree. But there were four major issues this year that we were working on as a community, as an environmental community. Um, expansion of renewable energy, uh, Forest Conservation Act, uh, fixing the Forest Conservation Act, which has not been updated since 1991. And tell people what, what does that mean well, in the Maryland? Forest, so the Forest Conservation Act was a bill... Was the a, elevator version. The elevator version. Because I know you can talk for hours about FCA. Um, yes. Uh, the It was designed to protect forests and pretend, prevent the remarkable deforestation of the state. Um, it, the as it's written now with... Uh, the short version is that for every acre of land you clear, of forest land you clear, you have to replace one quarter acre. We also have in, since 2013, uh, what's called a no net loss policy. Uh, it's an aspirational goal of no net loss. We don't want to lose any more forest land than we, ha than we have currently. So a quarter acre replacement for an acre cleared, yeah. that's not good math. No. Um, and so what we were trying to do this year was not just to say, we're not saying you can't clear forests, you just have to replace the priority forests, the best of the best, where the strongest ecosystems are. When, you, when you're developing in those priority forest areas, you need to replace one for one and maintain it. Um, and there's a lot more complication to it, and but that's a big part of it. And who could possibly be opposed to that, Kristen? Oh, well, there are developers, and there are oh. all kinds of people who would like to for whom it is inconvenient. Um, and it makes it more expensive. I mean, I, I, it's not just inconvenient. It makes it more expensive. It makes it more difficult. It, they have to go through different permitting. It's, um, I understand why people oppose it, but I also think it's important. So and Renewable Energy, Forest Conservation Act, what else were you guys uh, working we, on? We worked on a, a statewide ban of styrofoam. Currently, Prince George's County, Montgomery County, and now Baltimore City exist under uh, styrofoam bans for food service takeaway containers like cups and plates, um, clamshells. We have a, but we want to have it statewide so that everybody's, cons everything's consistent. Um, and then the last one had to do with uh, transparency of the Public Service Commission, which is really pretty wonky. Um, but it's the agency, it's a five-member board that approves major uh, energy development projects um, in natural gas and solar siting and solar energy projects. And, and this was to try and give people... It was to try to get people, make it easier for people to get engaged in the process earlier. Right. And make it clearer. Make, and then there was another part of it that um, required an elevation of health impact assessments to make sure that they were taking into account what these projects would mean for the health of the communities. And for those listening, how did this session turn out? Not great on those issues. Yeah. <laughs> well, but you stopped bad things too, we right? We stopped bad things from. We, yeah, no, we did have not some. Not all those proactive. Are, those were the priority issues, right. um, and all of them will be back next year because none of them passed this year. Um, we did get, however, uh, the full funding of Metro, which was huge. Right. Um, that was a very big deal. Uh, we. And full funding a program open space. And full funding a program open space. Um, we These are good things. Yeah, they're very good things. Uh, we also helped. Uh, we also helped to stop a bad bill that would have prevented 
uh, offshore wind farms, which are an organizational priority and really they are a priority of the state, um, and have been, they have been a priority of the state and should continue to be. Um, and we work to prevent offshore drilling. So it was it wasn't a great year, but there were some good there were some good victories. And as in baseball. There's always next year. <laughs> There's always next year, <laughs> which is one of the reasons I like working in elections because we're getting to take all this and we're getting to take um, all these issues and then talk to all the candidates coming up for re- who are looking to get elected and work to try to get people uh, bright new leadership into the General Assembly so we can get some of these things done. Well, why don't we take a quick break right here? And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about some of the the differences and some of the similarities in in terms of advocating for preservation um, with the environmental movement and perhaps how these two movements can play together a little bit better. And we'll do that right here on PreserveCast. And now it's time for a preservation explanation. And now, we bring you a brief update from Preservation Maryland Executive Director Nicholas Redding on the recent catastrophic flooding in Ellicott City, Maryland, and the role of the preservation community moving forward. When I last visited Ellicott City, I found a community full of hope and potential. Just two years shy of the devastating 2016 flood, Main Street bustled with activity and new life. Just a few short days after that visit, that new reality was shattered by a ferocious wall of water. In the span of less than 24 months, Ellicott City has endured two thousand-year floods. In 2016, the preservation community rallied around that community to rebuild and in the process spent millions of dollars and thousands of hours working to put the pieces back together. By early 2018, nearly 96% of the historic downtown storefronts were back in business, a stunning testament to the success of the recovery effort. Now the people of Ellicott City are confronted once more with the unenviable task of rebuilding. The unfortunate reality is that simply putting Ellicott City's buildings back together will not make the community stronger. As satisfying as it may be to see a new coat of paint or repointed brick walls, we must be careful never to confuse recovery with resilience. The flooding of Ellicott City is a vivid and undeniable reminder that the preservation of historic places is inextricably linked to far broader and more complex issues than the preservation community has traditionally focused its attention. We must now recognize that We cannot save historic Ellicott City if we're not part of the conversation about watershed overdevelopment and encouraging smart growth. We cannot save historic Ellicott City if we're not part of the conversation about stormwater mitigation and advocating for increased funding necessary to make it happen. We cannot save historic Ellicott City or any other historic place at the water's edge if we're not engaged in the broader effort to instill a sense of urgency for climate resiliency in action. These are not the conversations that the preservation community is accustomed to having, but if we're serious about saving places like Ellicott City, these are the conversations we must have. We can no longer sit on the sidelines of these debates because smart growth is preservation, and preservation is smart growth. We must think beyond the historic district because water and the forces of nature do not abide by arbitrary lines. If the recent flood in Ellicott City has taught us anything— It is that we must embrace a broader agenda and think beyond recovery alone. The future of our history depends on it. PreserveCast isn't just for Mondays anymore. Find all of our episodes at preservecast.org anytime. And we're on social media to continue the conversation at PreserveCast. If you have a question or want to suggest a topic, drop us a line at podcast at presmd.org. 
This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. We're joined today in studio by Kristen Harbison, who is the political director of the Maryland League of Conservation Voters, the political voice of the environment. And we've been talking about all things um, policy and what the league does and a little bit about Kristen's background and, and all the experiences that she had that led her to this current line of work. Um, and so, point blank, which is harder, in advocating for the environment or for preservation? <laughs> they both have their they both have their challenges as much as they are similar in terms of we're all looking for the same thing we're all working towards um land uh, towards development and making sure that we development where we where we want it and we're not where we don't we're uh putting people back into into older communities protecting the cherished landscapes that make our state as wonderful as it is, you and I are not usually in the same committees. Right. So it's it's different. It is different. Do you, now, but see, it's interesting because I think a lot of preservationists, not just here in Maryland, but around the country, would say, oh, the environmentalists have it so easy because everybody cares about the earth. Everybody cares about the environment. And I think to some extent, the preservation community has tried to co-opt, and maybe not just co-opt, but sort of make the case that, you know, what we're doing is, is environmentalism. Absolutely. Um, would you agree that, that, the, that the much maligned preservationist out there feeling this is right? Or do you, would you, will you give them solace and say it's just as hard being an environmentalist? I would, it, is, it is not easy fighting for the environment, um, even though everybody everybody loves trees, everybody loves the environment, everybody wants clean air and clean water, um, how we get there and how we prioritize uh, funding and regulations is hard. I would say that one of the things that the environmental community does have is uh, we have a lot of players. There are a lot of different groups that are working on our issues, um, which means that we our coalitions can be large and sometimes ungainly uh, but it also means we have a lot of power it's a very when sophisticated we can pull way of describing it when we pull when we're when we're all pulling together yeah um we can get amazing things done which is what happened with like the fracking ban that was an enormous victory uh which for those listening at home who may not have been following it as closely as i was um we were the first state in the country to uh, pass a ban on hydraulic fracking in a state that actually has gas deposits, right? And to enact it, this was this was huge. This was we were precedent setting, and there are other states that are trying to follow what we were able to do. Um, the year before that, we passed a Pollinator Protection Act bill, which was again everybody pulling together to pass first to the nation legislation. Which is tough in Maryland. We don't always yeah. we don't always lead. It's it is harder. We like to if make sure somebody else is doing it first. It's harder to be first because you don't. There are all the people who want to say, but if this happens, what will be the effect? Right. So for preservationists who are thinking of trying to engage the environmental community, and I, I like to think that Preservation Maryland has um, at least at least tried, and maybe in some cases done a good job of this. I mean, we somehow we got you to come into the. <laughs> into preserve cast. So some, we were doing something right. Um, any takeaways? I mean, obviously here in Maryland, I think there's, there's some good interplay, but across the country, if, if preservationists are thinking of, you know what, I should engage the environmental community, what kind of issues resonate? What, what is a, a good way? Are there some things that you can think of that might be useful for people to think about as they attempt to do that? Well, I think that one of the places that 
where we have natural synergy are things like stormwater, our stormwater management and land use issues of making sure our cities work right, that we are, uh, we're making sure that when we are developing, we're developing well and smartly and making sure that the resources are both human and natural are being tended to. Um, we just saw for the second time in two years, horrific flooding in historic Ellicott City right. with an entire historic downtown just decimated for the second time in two years. That is obviously a tragedy of human for hum, on a human level. It's a tragedy on an economic level. Um, it's a tragedy for historic preservation because Ellicott City is an extraordinary historic resource. Um, but it's also not a natural disaster. It was in part, right. it was in large part caused because of poor development uphill with and stormwater management. Um, right. it development ties, that has not paid for its impact. It has not paid for its impact that they are not controlling the fact that when these when there's floodwaters, that the water will go somewhere. Um, it was worse this year because it's been such a wet spring, but uh it's where we were able to work together to some on some level on the Forest Conservation Act because the Forest Conservation Act not only does it improve the quality of life and uh, that is where historic preservationists often live, but it also is the best stormwater management you can get. Right. Um, had there been more trees to to sort to absorb the groundwater. Who knows whether that we would have been able to mitigate against the terrific flooding that we saw the other day. Yeah. And I think it's a sterling opportunity for the preservation community to begin to embrace. And we've been talking about this here, sort of this this broader agenda in the sense that we can't just kind of uh, close our eyes at the end of the National Register boundary and say, well, anything beyond it, we don't have to worry about. Because Ellicott City, you know, the, the, the water doesn't care. And what happens beyond our so-called historic districts is, is, is impacting these historic places. Um, so it's a huge challenge. It's not just here in Maryland. That's the other thing. I mean, you know, we've been interviewed about it and they, you know, they asked the question, should Ellicott city rebuild? Why should the state spend so much money in Ellicott city? And, you know, our point on this is, well, look, um, this is coming to a community near you. It might just be Ellicott city right now, but it's not, it's certainly not the only place that's vulnerable here in the state of Maryland or, or certainly in the country. Um, and it's certainly not the only historic place, and there can be non-historic communities that caught up in this. Um, I, I think it's it's sort of a touchstone here, and it's an it's an interesting place for the environmental, the smart growth, preservation community to all kind of get on the same page and say, look, we got a problem. We all come at this from different perspectives, but we got to fix this. Absolutely. I mean, you you, so you talk about smart growth. I mean, that's basically what we're both working on. We're both working on whether it's smart growth, cap, smart growth, capital S, capital G, or smart growth smart development, appropriate development, sustainable development. Um, the greatest building is the one that's already built. Music to our ears, Kristen. <laughs> Music to our ears. So with that said, here's a question, and maybe I'm wrong, but why don't more environmentalists consider themselves preservationists? Because it seems to me that perhaps more preservationists would consider themselves environmentalists than the other way around. That the preservation community has embraced environmentalism, but the environmental community isn't, is it just that, well, that's, that's sort of a tertiary issue? Because to me, if it's the greenest building already standing, if the smartest growth is re, revitalizing and regrowing where it already is, I mean, can it seems like the environmental community has done a fantastic job of turning preservationists into environmentalists. 
can we do the same with the environmental community? I think so. I think that a lot of people don't understand what historic preservation is and does. Yeah, and or why today. It's, today, yeah. why it's, and why it's important. Um, I think that... I think that most of most environmentalists, if they were to say, if you said, do you, do you support historic, do you support having people living in existing communities? They would probably say yes. Would you want to prevent sprawl? Absolutely. Um, it's a matter of priorities, I think, in terms of not understand and not understanding what the preservation community is looking for. Yeah, and that's on the and preservation what's important, community. And what's yeah. important, um, environmentalists don't know about Section 106 um, in a, nearly as much as they should, and as it, it being a tool for us to be working together to um, address and mitigate and make projects better. Make um, There is... I think resistance with regards to in a lot of the environmental community that's focused on renewable energy, thinking of uh, maybe that historic preservation. Well, you can't you can't do that in historic districts. You mm -hmm. can't have solar panels in historic districts. You can't uh, you can't put in you know, the. They don't understand what right. preservationists understand. Or they see us that as an they, they, they think that preservationists are, are obstructionists. Yeah. yeah. They don't understand what preservationists understand, that uh, the greenest building is the one that's already built, and that there is value and environmental value to older structures. So what's next for you in the league? So we understand that you're going to be coming back at some of those same With issues. all those same issues. Any new issues on the horizon? I know you guys are always oh, working on a lot of different things. Um, well, we don't. I don't know. I mean, there are always a lot of issues that are that are perking under the surface. Mm -hmm. um, the four issues that I mentioned will coming will be coming back in some form next year. Um, we're really involved, and I think this is a place where we'll be working together on um, well issues of. Of renewable energy, one of the things that we need to address is where do does renewable energy live? Where how do we understand? Maryland is a small state. Mm -hmm. Everybody wants to get to 100% clean energy. I think you know, among the people that you and I are going to be talking to, as an aspirational goal, that's where we all want to get to, and we're wanting to work very hard to set the steps to get to that point. Right. But we need to look at. How do we do that while keeping agricultural land and agricultural use? How do we do that while protecting our historic landscapes? How do we do that while not destroying forests? How do we do that and how do we make it easier and more affordable um, for solar to develop where we want it, which is on closed landfills, which is on gray fields and brown fields mm -hmm. and uh, rooftops. Yeah, uh, and community solar. And community solar. Not just large-scale right. industrial. Sure. Yeah. And but even community solar, those are projects that take up a certain amount of land. Right. So where that land is mm -hmm. and how, those, how that land is selected and developed is, I think, something that we're going to get need to get really serious about in the next term. Particularly so if that, we get to 100%, because so that we can get you're talking to 100%. about real numbers then. And, and Absolutely. Big impacts, which is good, but we want to make sure that we don't 
as you say, it doesn't go in the wrong places. And that's right. not just a Maryland issue. No, this is a something that's, this is something that is being looked at all over the country and all over the world. Yeah. So if preservationists around the, the, the country are listening to this and we know that our our listenership is broad. <laughs> listenership is broad and many of you also are probably have in states with renewable portfolio standards. Yeah. So it's time to start thinking about that. It yeah. was, it's it's long long after time, but as these these standards grow, it's even more imperative um, for everybody to start looking at that. So, well, and then you've got the election. So there, you, you're, you have your work cut out I, for you. I am busy. That's good. Job security. <laughs> so Keeps me out of trouble. Before we let you go, and this has been fantastic, and, and I always enjoy talking with you and, and thinking about all the ways that we can work together. But um, we ask this of every person who comes in here is the most difficult question. The favorite historic building or place? Lana Coding Silk Mill. Bam. That was quick. Most people hem and haw. I mean, there are a lot of places that I could Tell go us what to. it is. People don't know. So the Lawn and Cutting Silk Mill is something I got to visit while low these many years ago when I worked in the hallowed halls of, his, of Preservation, Maryland. Um, it is a silk mill that is out in a town, tiny little town in western Maryland, um, about in a tiny town. Yeah. It was built in the early 1900s during the peak of of the um, the silk industry, and it operated until the 1940s when there was a couple things happened, one of which was a uh, decline in the silk industry with the n- rise of the nylon trade, and also uh, labor disputes. And this is important that this is the history, that the, about this history, about what why it was, because in the 50s, the labor disputes and the lack of business in the silk industry meant that the Lonaconing Silk Mill closed. And it closed its doors with everything intact inside. And it's still there today. It is still there today. When I was there now 10 years ago, on a cold January day, Walking inside, you could have turned those machines on. There were shoes on the machines that had been left by the workers. There was a calendar on the wall from the month after it closed because the day, the month that it had closed, that sheet had fallen down. Um, there were artifacts. There were um, artifacts in the cubby holes left by the workers who just the doors closed and nobody went back in. 50 years it is an absolute time capsule in a way that I've never seen before or since. And I, that was a fantastic answer. Great place. And I just recently this week saw an article about it, about how they're trying to form a nonprofit there now oh, to spur heart. some That's, redevelopment. I hope it that is, they're able to do it because it is extraordinary. It's it is, an amazing it's, old the building. The challenge is it's in the middle of nowhere. If someone well, wants yes. a historic building in the middle of nowhere, get in touch with us. We can help you. Yeah, there are a lot of there are a lot of challenges to it. Part of it is its, its location. Um but it's close to both Cumberland and Frostburg, which are sizable cities, but it's not close enough yeah. that it's been able to get any of the benefit Maybe from Maybe new headquarters for the league. If you guys are interested, <laughs> let me know. We can set you up. Well, this, Field office. Kristen, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you not only for joining us today, but for all the good work that you're doing, because as much as we give the environmental community a hard time from now and now and then, I appreciate the ability to drink water without thinking that it's going to be poisoned. And, <laughs> and I like to think that you had something to do with that. So, Well, I appreciate that. And I look forward to always working with you. You don't need to open a history book to find us. PreserveCast is available online from iTunes, the Google Play Store, and wherever else you download your podcasts, as well as on our website, preservecast.org. 
where you can find a complete archive of all our previous episodes, plus photo galleries and additional content. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This podcast was developed under a grant from the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training, a unit of the National Park Service, and in partnership with the Anacostia Trails Heritage Area. Its contents are the sole responsibility of Preservation Maryland and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the National Park Service or the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training. Our website is made possible by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. This week's episode was produced and engineered by me, Stephen Israel. Our executive producer is Aaron Markovich. Our theme music is performed by the band Pretty Gritty. And most importantly, thank you for listening and preserving. 